Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here with Fireside Chat number 253. 255. 255. Yep. That's, that's cool. I have no idea how long Otto is going to stay. We uh, bribed him with some food. However, the food was inhaled. I won't even say chewed, inhaled within a few seconds. He's sniffing for more food. When he discovers there isn't any, he might leave. But it's, I think it's most critical that he be in at least at the beginning. Then, then everybody feels life is normal. So hi, everybody. The Fireside Chat to review is spontaneous thinking from me to you and then taking your questions wherever you are in the world. And it's a very special half hour each week. The weeks go by fast, don't they? That's my theory. Life goes by by the week. The day is a normal length, the month, the year, but weeks zoom by. Just a subjective take on time. So I want to talk to you about a classroom sign, I think is an elementary classroom sign that I saw in the New York Times just this past week. There's an article on schools. It had nothing to do with the sign, but I just noticed it. I was riveted by it. It was one of these, you know, big signs in a classroom. It had a drawing of a globe and around it were words and each letter was a different color. So that's why I assume it was elementary school. And the, I don't remember the exact words, but essentially the wording was, the world is better because you are in it. So this was a message to, I don't know, fifth graders, eighth graders, so, somewhere between that. So what, what age would that be? Eighth grade is about 13. So, so between 10 and 13. Yeah, make, that makes sense. It blew my mind. <laughs> Gotta tell you, the world is better because you are in it. So I was thinking, number one, did I ever get such a message when I was eight or 10 years old and I started to crack up? If you would have said to my parents, you know, I think you should tell Dennis that the world is better because he is in it. I think my mother would have probably just left the room and, and done what she wanted to do, call up a friend or something. My father would probably have said, what? I'm not sure he would have understood. It's not like his English was def defective. His English was perfect. He really taught me how to write. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, well, you saw him. This is the new auto. Very restless. What can I do, my friends? Our theory is he might find the fire too warm, but he didn't find the fire too warm for four years. So I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. What am I going to do? My father would have thought, uh, what? The world is better because Dennis is in it. And he would have thought the person was, was losing their mind. Why, why would you say that? 
And it's not anti-Dennis that he would have said that. It was, it was pro-reality. Why is the world better? Because any 10-year-old is in it. <laughs> Let's be honest. I'm not sure the world is better because the average 40-year-old is in it. Some people make the world better. Some people make the world worse. Some people have no effect or minimal effect. It's pablum, vocabulary fat. (laughs) That's what pablum is. (laughs) Anyway, it's a bad message. It's not only a stupid, meaningless message. It's a bad one. It just feeds narcissism. I don't want 10-year-olds walking around thinking the world is better because they're in it. First of all, I don't like lying. Truth is the pillar of society. When truth is knocked out, it's all over. That's why it gets me so worried when people say men give birth, that that we have abandoned elementary truths for the sake of some ideological agenda is very, very bad. But back to this, it's just not true, okay? The world is better because you are in it. By the way, I covered this on my radio show and I I came up with the thought, if they really believe that, the teachers who put this nonsense up, then they should be as at least ambivalent about abortion, if not opposed to most of them. If the world is better because every single kid who's in it is in it, don't you want more kids? Then the world will even be even better. Right? I mean, that's just, that's just a logical deduction from that sign. When I was, let's see, when I was, I don't know when I was. So I was, I guess I was in my 20s. They came up with, an, yeah, I was in my 20s. They came up with an idea. It was called the self-esteem movement. This is new, I mean, relatively new. And it was developed by a, a Democrat who was a member of the state Senate of California, John Vasconcelos. I remember it because I, I met him, I interviewed him actually. His theory was, he, he said, I was raised a Catholic and I had my knuckles wrapped and, you know, they they yelled at me and... I had very low self-esteem, and then I went to therapy for years, and I got much more self-esteem, and then I realized that's what people need is more self-esteem. That was his thinking. This is the the uh, application of the therapeutic to societal issues has been one of the terrible ideas of the last half century or more. It's a, the therapeutic model for society. The therapeutic model might work for an individual, but not for a society. So they developed this idea, let's give kids self, self-esteem. The great, great, great problem with that was you can't be given self-esteem. You must earn it. If you're given it, it's phony. And phony self-esteem is really dangerous. A lot of of awful people have phony self-esteem. You need to earn self-esteem. I have done well. I have done good. 
I have accomplished something, so I have some self-esteem. That's a good thing. Your, the world is better because you are in it is a bad message. A, it's not true. B, it makes the 8-year-old, the 10-year-old, 13-year-old think that they're terrific. They're not terrific. Okay? Maybe your 10-year-old is terrific because every parent thinks their 10-year-old is terrific. I don't, I don't know what terrific means. If every kid is terrific, then it, the, the term is meaningless. I'll tell you what the message ought to be. It ought to be, if you have to use the term even, the world is better. You're in the world, so try to make it a little better. That's fine. I, I, I can live with that. But it's not better because you're in it. That's why all of these, this whole last generation of, of statements to kids, you're the best, you're terrific, you're awesome. How many times have parents said to their kid, you're awesome? You know what awesome means? It's nothing better than awesome. If you develop a cure for cancer, that's awesome. If you can play a Beethoven's 32nd Piano Sonata that's, and, and do it well, that's awesome. I mean, let's keep the word where it deserves, uh, where it deserves to be. You're awesome. You're, you're terrific. You're the best. All of these, this heaping of praise on children. Again, I know it's a generational thing, but maybe one generation was more correct than the other. My generation is not just me. We were praised like once in five years. I, I didn't live for my parents' praise. And, you know, and if I got it, I assumed that I had done something, you know, worthy of praise. Kids who grow up like this grow up to think that life is going to just heap praise upon them. And that's not healthy either. Then they'll, they'll expect praise from everybody whom they meet. And that, that's not a, a good way to lead a life. It was a bad sign, that sign, in that classroom. That, that's my message. And we're giving a lot of bad signs to kids with the heaping of praise. I'll, I'll, I'll end this, these opening comments with what I say whenever new parents ask me, so or new parents-to-be. So, Dennis, we're, uh, we're expecting a child in X, X number of months, or we're new parents. What's your, what's your advice? And I said, tell, tell your child that self-control is infinitely more important than self-esteem. That's my message. That, that's what should be your message to your kid. Self-control, that's the best thing you could teach your child, not self-esteem. Okie dokie. Let's see our video question of the week. Okay, take it away. Hi, Dennis. My name is Lindsay Balif. I'm 23 years old, and I'm in Panama City Beach, Florida. And my question is, do you think that 
we have the power as young people to make an artistic revolution because I feel like the woke mob, especially the left, has created a space where real art can no longer exist. And I think we have an amazing opportunity to create a revolution of freedom so that we can create meaningful art, more than just what Daily Wire is doing. Do you think we should utilize Prayer Force and other networking groups to create an artistic revolution of filmmakers, writers, etc.? Thank you. <laughs> okay. There were about six different questions in there. <laughs> so number one, it's really, it's, it's the world is so, it's so upside down. We made a revolution of freedom in 1776. <laughs> the th that we have to do it again in, in the first quarter of the 21st century is so sad. But uh, Ronald Reagan was right. We are always one generation away from losing liberty. Boy, is that ever true. These things that sound like lines are sometimes very profound. So if, he, if you want to take it upon yourself or yourselves to reassert the primacy of freedom, that would be beautiful. And I wish you well, needless to say, that's what we're trying to do at PragerU. With regard to doing it in the arts, it's needed everywhere that what the left has done to the arts is what it's done to mute, what it's done to music and art and architecture and to elementary schools, high schools and colleges, to the American Medical Association, to the uh, medical journals, to late night television, to sports. It is, it, it, I've delineated this in a video for PragerU and in a column, everything the left touches it destroys. There is no exception. Not liberals, leftists. I always make that distinction. Do you know that there was an exhibit in the Netherlands? I don't know what year, maybe 10 years ago. Maybe, maybe no, less than that. Maybe five years ago. And it was covered seriously in a long piece in the New York Times art section. I think I've mentioned this on a, on a video but it is worth mentioning again. The artistic venture was sculpture in a gigantic Dutch museum where they had gigantic, and this is their word, turds. Did I, do you recall me mentioning yeah, yeah, this? Yeah, I do. Gigantic sculpted turds. Look it up, actually. Turds exhibit Netherlands. It'll come up. So when you have descended from Michelangelo to poop, you know that you need a revolution in the arts. That's correct. To reassert beauty and meaning and artistic excellence. It doesn't take much skill to sculpt a turd, but it does take skill to sculpt Michelangelo's Pieta or Rodin's The Thinker. That's different. So if Prager Force can help you in this way, that would be great. I think what Daily Wire is doing is wonderful, by the way. Prager U and 
uh, Daily Wire work a lot in tandem. We we are not competitors at all. We are com- we are both competing with the forces of nihilism that are threatening the beautiful creation known as Western civilization. Okie doke. Let's see now. Jennifer, 45, Fort Worth, Texas. Hello, Dennis and crew. Hi, crew. There's been a lot of chatter in the news about parents taking issue with sexually explicit books in school libraries. These parents are often called book-burning fascists who are trying to control schools and push a far-right Christian agenda. They are also accused of being hateful and insensitive towards students who identify as a part of the homosexual or transgender communities, and that sheltering children from these topics does nothing but create division. Well, she she knows what they say. That's true. Dennis, what are your thoughts on pushing back on allowing such books to be on school shelves? Where do we draw the line on freedom of intellect? Thank you and God bless. If People, if all parents were aware of what is being taught to young people today in schools, and I mean really young, I'm talking about even in the first grades of school, non-binary and and even sexual activity, you know, the concept of non-binary, you're not really a boy or a girl, you'll determine what you want, maybe you're neither, maybe you're both, and then just explicit sexuality. Uh, I mean, I've seen signs that were put up in, in classrooms of the genitals of, of men, for example. Uh, it, it's, it, it's hard to believe, actually. And I'm not a prude, by the way. I think of adults, if it's not hurting anybody, you know, it's, it's between you and your, and your companion and you and God. Do what, you do what you want if it doesn't hurt others. But uh, for kids, I am for protecting them. Uh, as I would protect uh, gold at Fort Knox. Th- this is, it, it's like is about an elementary, a, an obligation upon adults as exists to protect children's innocence. You don't get many years to be innocent. And they're very valuable, very valuable. The longer you have this period of innocence, it should not, by the way, go into adulthood. But the longer you have this period of innocence, I think the stronger and healthier an adult you will be. Of course you monitor what books are in, a, uh, in a, an elementary school library. Of course you do. I mean, for the left to talk about censorship is, is beyond belief. They're for censoring what adults read, misinformation, and, and, and the rest of the things that they hate speech. No. It's all backwards. Let adults read what they want, but do not let children read what they want. You have to protect children. You don't have to protect adults. It's like, uh, even in sexuality, the, the left robs children of innocence with sexually explicit messages and pictures, but adults, they, they took away the swimsuit competition from the Miss America pageant a couple of years ago. Adults should be innocent. It's too sexualizing of women, a swimsuit competition. What are you talking about? These are adults. Swimsuit competition is too sexualizing? But wait a minute. But, but 
drag queen story hour is not sexualizing. I've seen I've seen videos of this with basically with twerking of a guy of a guy in a skirt. I, <laughs> oh God, is it all backwards? It's so all upside down. Chris, 49, Dittmer, Missouri. Hi, Dennis. I was listening to your podcast on the hookup culture. This seems to me to be a foreign concept as I have been in a monogamous relationship for a long time. I was curious from your experience if monogamous relationships are a generational thing. Um, the issue is not as a generational. The issue is, is that the ideal? But you're asking if it's generational? Well, monogamy has been the norm for, uh, f for many, many centuries. What is the choice if monogamy is not the ideal? Monogamy is commitment to one partner. You can, be, you can have polygamy. You're committed to more than one partner. You marry, even marry more than one person. Or without marriage, you have another partner. That's common in Europe and South America, by the way, at least for men. The American ideal has been monogamy. You don't, you don't have another partner. It's a challenge. Monogamy is a challenge. And this, of course, if you went to college, you'll find this very upsetting. Uh, is particularly a challenge for men. Men are more variety-oriented than women in their sexual instinct. That's not an opinion. It's not praise. It's not, it's not uh, a criticism. It's just a fact. Men are variety-oriented in their sexual being. That's a big difference between women's sexual nature and men's. They both obviously have sexual urges, but the variety is deeply built into men. I've talked about this a lot with women on my radio show over the course of years. And I've, I have said on the radio, on my male-female hour, that if your husband is faithful, on a, every so often, just tell him how much you appreciate that fact. Just as you appreciate things in your wife. It's a challenge to virtually every man. The proof of that, there are many proofs. The proof is gay men are want a variety of men. It's built into men whether you're gay or straight. The, so lesbians don't want a variety of, of unlimited numbers of women. But gay men want an unlimited number of, of men to have hookups with. Not all do. Some are, are monogamous to their credit. But it's built into men whether they're the object of their desire is male or female. One of the proofs of the variety issue is, I, I was just reading, because I, 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 I read about pop culture to stay up on what's new. One of the most beautiful or sexy models of, of the contemporary time is married for four years, and she's now divorcing her husband because he was a serial cheater. <laughs> and 
Everybody reading this thinking, he was a serial cheater on her? And I remember it happened. It was a very famous British actor. It's not important who. Many, this is really like 25 years ago. Yeah, 25 years ago, I'd say. Came to the United. He, he was living with Elizabeth Hurley. I'll mention her name. She was considered the sexiest woman in the world by a vote on the internet. Came to America for a business trip and immediately hooked up with a prostitute who was not particularly attractive. I don't mean this to insult her. I mean this only to make a point. And people would think, wait a minute, this guy went for this woman living with the sexiest woman in the world? That male variety instinct is there. This guy was only married four years to this particularly sexy model. And sure enough, he was a serial cheater. Men's nature is serial cheating. (laughs) And therefore, to your question, monogamy has always been an ideal. And it should be the ideal. I have another theme which I'd like to develop. Life is hard. And if you don't know that at the outset you won't lead a fulfilled life. Monogamy is hard. Exercise is hard. Achievement is hard. Honesty is hard. Eating right is hard. Everything good is hard. The earlier you know that in life, the better a life and the happier a life you will live. You should go into marriage, especially men, understanding you are, by definition, curbing your sexual appetite. As much as you love her or are attracted to her, and may that continue all the days of your life. But that, and by the way, the wife should know this. He, he is, by getting married, he is saying goodbye to a chunk of his natural urge. This is, this is what grown-ups do. They look at reality in the face and then they say, okay, I recognize you and I will not let you dominate me. In other words, I will not let you, my nature, dominate me. I will dominate my nature. Long answer to the monogamy question. What's our timing? 28 minutes. 28? Sarah, 15 years old, Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, Mr. Prager. Hello, Sarah. It is quite clear that you love what you do. I'm glad that it's clear. That's really, really important. You know that? Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the appeal that I have to people when I analyze it just objectively. You don't want to think they're doing it for the money. I think it just as an example. Anyway, and also make a good living out of it. That's really funny. That's real. There it came. How does one get used? How does one get to use their talents and have a successful livelihood in that field? Personally, I love the arts, but that's rather hard to get into to be and be prosperous. 
Thank you for everything you and Prager you do for all your watchers and listeners. This is a great question. The ideal, if you're really, 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 really lucky, is you do well and you do good. That's the ideal. The ideal or another aspect is you make a living out of what you love, which is what this question is about. You love the arts and it's very difficult to make a living in the arts. That is true. Unless you sculpt poop, then there's really a future in it for you which since you're 15, I won't dwell upon. <laughs> God knows what she's going to tell her parents after this. If I loved the art, I love the arts, but I knew I couldn't. I, I knew, I, for example, I'd never be a great pianist. I did. So here, I'll tell you what I did. I loved music deeply. And I taught myself how to conduct orchestras. And I actually got good enough to conduct orchestras. My most recent was a Haydn symphony at the Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. But it's not my vocation. It's my avocation. So you can make what you love your avocation. And that way you get to do what you love, but you make a living doing something else. That's the happy balance for most people. Most people will not make a living doing the thing they most love. And that's okay. Do what you love. Don't make it necessarily a living from it. By the way, you might get good enough and you eventually will. If, if you love woodwork and you get good enough at woodwork, that it's, it, it goes from avocation to vocation, that's fine. But by the way, that's not necessarily a blessing. Once you have to make a living out of what you love, you may love it less. That's very important to realize I would continue working in the arts if one day you can sell some of what you do. That's icing on the cake, but you don't have to give up your love, but then you have to make a living additionally. That's how I would look upon these things. But I, I, I want to repeat, don't necessarily think that making a living from what you love will be a blessing. It's, it may be very lovable as a hobby, as a passion, as an avocation, but not so lovable when you have to do it every day and do it well and make a living from it. So what is it the old saw? Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Okay. Wonderful to be with you. I'm Dennis Prager. See you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To help keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.